me a grumpy old man. People say I have this thing called irritable male syndrome. Now, signs that you're becoming a grumpy old man include technology annoys you. You know, email and Facebook, they're okay. I really don't have any idea about Snapchat or Tumblr or Tinder. They're kind of all the same, aren't they? Grumpy old men also hate it when people misuse words. Like, I'm going to song lead. They should be saying, you know, song lead is not a verb. They should be saying, I'm going to lead songs. I'm not going to song lead. Or when people say, Isaiah instead of Isaiah, (laughs) grumpy old men notice these things. Grumpy old men replace conversation with complaints. At some point in most days of the week, you'll probably hear me say, are you kidding me? What's wrong with that person? Or the world's gone mad. For example, when people feel lazy, they'll go out and get fast food. But even lazier people, they go and order Uber Eats to get their McDonald's. How lazy can you get? What is wrong with those people? In my hospital, the junior doctors have to be provided with water to drink. Some of you junior guys, yeah, you guys in that row there, um, know that. The hospital's supposed to provide water for them to drink. But not just water, it's got to be sparkling water. And not just sparkling water, it's got to be sparkling water that comes out of the tap. So in my hospital, the RPA at the moment, every ward is being renovated so the tap provides sparkling water. Well, it's gone mad, I tell you. I give anaesthetics for cesarean sections on Thursdays. When the baby comes out, I like to let the parents see for themselves whether they've had a boy or a girl. The other day, I said to the mum, hey, you know, what'd you get? Did you get a boy or a girl? And the mum got angry at me. She said, my baby hasn't decided what gender it wants to be yet. Don't use stereotype. Seriously, this world has gone mad. And no wonder I am a grumpy old man. As I look around the world the world that surrounds us, sometimes I do really wonder if the world has gone mad, out of control. I look at the crisis in Hong Kong, where they've had 35 straight weeks of riots, pro-democracy protesters against the communist China-backed police. We've all got friends and relatives who live there at some risk. That's not going to end well. But there are so many other countries currently out of control, and Li Ling prayed for some of them. There are riots in Bolivia as the president, Evo Morales, has fled the country to Mexico. There are riots in Chile, as um, Jen witnessed in the last couple of weeks. Venezuela has fallen apart. The Syrian crisis continues. The Iraq crisis continues. The North Korean crisis continues. Has our world gone mad? For Christians, has the world gone mad? The moral state of Western society is progressively more and more anti-Christian. It's so hard to talk about God without being attacked these days. The laws on freedom of speech, on sexual expression, on euthanasia and abortion, they're all becoming so anti-Christian that sometimes it feels like the world is caving in on us. Has the world gone mad? Where is God amidst all of these goings-on? Where's God? when we think that this world has gone out of control? Do these things just happen throughout history over and over again? Where is hope in this crazy world? So the question for us today is, when the world seems out of control, where is God? What is he doing about it? And what hope do we have? What hope do we have in this world? Well, I dare say that people throughout history probably complain just as much as I do today. I have no doubt 
there were grumpy old men thousands and years, thousands of years ago on this earth. Well, back in Isaiah's time when this passage was written, the Israelites really had reason to think that the world had gone mad. The world was literally caving in on them. They were a tiny nation that was surrounded by a hostile and massive Assyrian kingdom. And they would have no defences against this superpower. They would have felt like Hong Kong, the city of Hong Kong, facing the 1.7 billion people in China with its army of 2.5 million soldiers, their tanks and nuclear warheads. For Israel, it seemed like they might be eaten alive. Let's see what they were doing, uh, what they were facing on the map. You remember when Rolf introduced um, this series on Isaiah, he showed us the map of the countries back then. And I just want to show you a video of, of how it all evolved. We're looking at the green Israel and seeing how is Assyria um, grew and influenced and intimidated Israel. Let's play the video. So with time, Israel has shrunk. Is that video going? It's growing very slowly. Uh, so you see areas, Assyria's dominance grow and grow and conquer all the other lands. Israel is still there, tiny in comparison to Assyria. And we're approaching... Oh, we're going backwards. Why are we going backwards? Oh, no, we're not. We're going forwards. BC. <laughs> not very good at maths. Um, do you reckon you can make it go faster? Okay, Assyria's growing and growing and growing. Israel's become Judah there, and look how tiny it is compared to Syria. Look at that. That's just mad. How would you feel if you're part of Israel or Judah back then? Where am I? Here I am. The scale shows that Israel is nothing compared to Assyria. There was little hope. To them, the world had gone mad. But not only was there political madness, there was moral madness. The Assyrians were the terrorists of the ancient world. The accounts of their conquests are gory, they're cruel and ruthless. But that moral decay also infiltrated Israel itself. Back in chapter 1, if you remember, we saw God condemning Israel for their own filth in their society. There was oppression, there was corruption and injustice. So the world in Isaiah's time had gone mad, both politically and morally. God's chosen people, Israel, had gone mad. And the rest of the world and its kingdom had all gone mad. What's God doing about a world gone mad? What's his plan? What hope was there? And so God's response is revealed today in Isaiah 24. So let's turn to the passage. It'll be on the screen, or you can have a look on your own devices or your Bibles. I get this passage, which is the grumpy old man passage, the passage on judgment Isaiah 24 is terrifying and bleak. It's about the destruction of the earth. In fact, some people call this passage the Isaiah Apocalypse. It's the prediction about how the earth will end. And this is the prophecy. You see in verses 1 and 3, see the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. And later on it says the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. This is what God is going to do to the world. This is his response to the world that has gone mad. But before we look at these actions, I just want to note something that's important. There's a God. Despite the world going mad, there is a God. And this God is the Lord, the God of the Bible. 
These days, there isn't supposed to be a God. The assumption is that the world just exists, history goes on and on and on forever. Something's changed, but history is an endless cycle. We move from the first century to the 21st century and eventually to the 31st century, and the assumption is there is nothing outside of this universe, only the physical world, but nothing such as the spiritual side. It's just the world and its ongoing history. The ancient pagan religions and the kingdoms believe this, and I think so does the modern world around us today. But the Bible and this passage say, no, there is a God. In Isaiah 40, verse 9, it says, here is your God. There is a God who oversees the whole world, who knows what's going on, who acts in the life of this world, who's in control of this world, and has a plan for this world. The Bible says that the universe doesn't just exist, but there's a spiritual side to life. There's a reality outside the limitations of our own experience, outside the limitations of our own knowledge, and that, that is God. God is sovereign over the whole earth too. Not just Israel, not just Assyria, but all nations, and even the rest of the unknown world back then, ancient China, Aboriginal times in Australia. God is sovereign over all of them as well. Now, knowing that God is in control of the world is fantastic. It's reassuring. It's good to know that even though the world's gone mad, God still has it under control. God is bigger than those kingdoms, and God is bigger than Western morals. On the other hand, though, knowing that there's a sovereign God who's out there is also terrifying, because that God is all-powerful, and he casts his judgment and punishment at his will. And that's what is horrific about today's passage his judgment on the world. The point is, God really is there, and there are consequences. Let's look at what Isaiah's prophecy of judgment is. Well, firstly, by way of background, from chapters 13 to 22, um, the section that we haven't covered in in the series, there are prophecies of judgment against specific surrounding nations, so that he said at different times throughout history, He's going to punish Babylon, Assyria, the Philistines, Moab, Syria, Cush, Egypt, Arabia, and Tyre, and even Jerusalem and Israel. And each one of them, each one of these nations will be treated separately. But we get to chapter 24 here and it all comes together. The Lord is going to lay waste the whole earth and devastate it. The whole earth. This is God's response to the world gone mad. And this is the response of a holy and righteous God to a sinful and rebellious world. It's judgment. Now, God's judgment will be regardless of race or position in life. In verse 2, he says, It'll be the same for priest as for people, master as for his servant, mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. So God's judgment is universal and undiscriminating. It wasn't just for the Assyrians. No one's going to be exempt. Why is that so? How is this fair? Was it just God flexing his divine muscles, just showing off his power? Well, no. God's judgment is the result of the choices that people make on earth. All people deserve God's judgment. It says in verse 5 here in this chapter, the earth earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. So it says that people have disobeyed God. The whole earth's people have disobeyed the laws, statutes, and covenant. 
but it kind of sounds strange, doesn't it? Shouldn't these laws and covenant just apply to Israel? You know, how can you apply those laws to the whole world? How can people be accountable to the Mosaic law that was only revealed to Israel? Well, in fact, as I was saying that there are laws that God has written on every human conscience, there is such a thing as universal law and therefore universal sin. And Paul also reiterates that in, in Romans 1 when he says that God is judging the whole world because he revealed himself to all people through creation so that people are without excuse. It doesn't necessarily require spe- special revelation to know that there is a God. What this means is that there are common standards of human behaviour. Humans know enough to behave better than they actually do. Do you think this is true? Let's take an example. In every civilization, whether modern or ancient, there are some common values in their law codes. I want to take two of them lying and stealing. Why does every civilization prohibit lying and stealing? We might say the answer is obvious because no civilization can survive harmoniously or successfully when everyone can lie and steal. It wouldn't work, it would be wrong. But what about the moral side? Why can't you have a civilization where everybody lies and steals? The reality is if everybody did what was natural to them and pursued their true desires, everyone would lie and steal all the time. But no one has ever had to, um, so no one has ever had to teach children to lie or steal. They just do it anyway. But we do teach our ch- children not to lie or steal because it's not natural. Why do we do this? Because basically, we all have internal morals in our hearts put there by God himself. The morals are not natural. Our nature is to lie and to steal. But God has instilled in people his moral law. And all people have broken that moral law. So that's why Isaiah can declare that God is punishing all people for disobeying his universal moral laws. God's punishment is severe. The world will be completely laid waste. Now, you might picture in this judgment a land that has been conquered, perhaps taken over by another nation. People lose their land and their homes. But it's not just physical punishment. In verses 7 to 12, the very heart and soul of the people has been ripped out. They lose their joy and they lose their hope. In that passage behind, you can see there's no more wine, no more merrymaking. They can't even enjoy music. All joy, in verse 11, all joy turns into gloom and all gaiety banished from the earth. There's nothing to live for. Losing your material goods is bad, but losing your heart and everything you enjoy is soul-destroying. This judgment is terrible. God's judgment is not to be sneezed at. It's not a caricature but it is terrifying. Hebrews 10, 31 says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In 1741, there's a preacher called Jonathan Edwards. He preached a sermon in Massachusetts called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a famous sermon. He described just how horrific God's judgment is. His sermon was so terrifying that that day people were screaming out, during the sermon for God to save them. They were holding on to their chairs, holding on to the walls and the poles uh, in the church, physically terrified of God's judgment. I reread the sermon yesterday, and it is, even today, too disturbing for me to quote to you now. 
I do recommend that you read it in your own time, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. The point is, don't dumb down the severity of God's judgment. It's bad. It's terrifying. And the right response to God's judgment is only one thing, to plead for God's mercy and to ask for a deliverer. Like those who heard the sermon that day, we need to scream out to God to save us. When Israel's world was going mad, facing obliteration by Assyria, all they could do was to cry out to God and ask for a deliverer. In the face of this passage in Isaiah 24, the whole world, the world's people, need to cry out to God for deliverance. Isaiah 24 drives you to the gospel. It drives you to need Jesus to save us. But amidst all of this chapter of gloom and doom, there is a faint glimmer of hope. Did you see it? If you look at verse 6, it says, Therefore a curse consumes the earth, its people must bear their guilt. Therefore earth's inhabitants are burned up, and very few are left. The whole earth will be punished, but not quite. A few are left. Some will be saved. God is indeed merciful. He's not wiping out the whole of mankind. As he's promised throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, there's a cycle throughout Israel's history where the people rebel against God, God punishes them for their sin, but he always saves a small number, a remnant of people who will be the future of God's kingdom. There's still hope, and this is God's plan all along. It's like with plants and vegetables, as Margaret was telling me last night, you can get a lettuce, you can eat most of it, most of the leaves, and just leave that bottom part, which you can replant, and from that remnant, a whole new plant will grow, a whole new lettuce will grow. You can do it with leeks, you can do it with bok choy, celery, spring onions, and even with sweet potato. You discard most of the vegetable, but if you save a remnant, you can regrow the whole thing again. That's how God works with his kingdom. In Genesis, God punished the whole world by sending a flood but he saved Noah's family to continue his plan. And here in Isaiah, God will lay waste the whole earth, but save a small remnant to continue his plan. And that remnant will know God, it will grow, and it grow into God's kingdom. Isaiah goes on to talk more about the remnant. The remnant will have joy, and the remnant will praise God and declare his name throughout the whole world. It is this remnant that Isaiah speaks of in verses 14 to 16, and this is really positive. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, glory to the righteous one. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, glory to the righteous one. The faithful remnant come from all over the earth, not just one nation, not just from Israel, but from east and west to praise God. We're that faithful remnant that comes from the ends of the earth. We're from Australia. It doesn't get any further than that. So this passage has global perspective. This passage is very missiological. So while the judgment of Isaiah 24 is terrifying, there is hope. There is deliverance of that remnant. And we know that ultimately God has provided that deliverance in the person of Jesus. So, so far, it's all good for the remnant. But when you read on, Isaiah's response isn't what you might expect. As God's prophet and part of that remnant with this glorious future, you'd expect that Isaiah would be triumphant and upbeat. 
but is not. What does he say in verse 16? He says, but I, say, I said, I waste away, I waste away, woe to me. Woe to me. In modern lingo, it sucks to be me. Israel, uh, not Israel, Isaiah is miserable. Why is he miserable? After all, he's not the one who's going to be punished or destroyed. Why the face? Because Israel is mourning for the state of the world. People around him are going to hell. And that's the right response to God's judgment, even when you're not the recipient of that judgment. Isaiah doesn't take his, his salvation for granted, but he grieves for the world. He has a heart for the lost. He has a missiological heart. Today we look around our world and we see that the world has gone mad and it's destined for God's judgment. What's your response? As Christians, we're saved and we can happily come to church to worship God. But how can we do so without some degree of sadness seeing that those around us are destined for judgment? God's promises to his people are glorious and it's something we can look forward to. But Isaiah can't jump so far ahead. He doesn't let the promise of heaven hide the awful realities of what's going to happen to the world before he hits heaven. While we wait for heaven, we've got to have a similar attitude like Isaiah's. Woe is me. We need to mourn for the world. We need to have a missiological heart. We must drive our non-Christian families and friends to the gospel. We, have a, we must have a priority for mission and drive the nations from all over the world to the gospel. We need to be desiring the salvation of the nations. This is a right response to a world that faces judgment. We need to be like Isaiah. Then we move on to verses 19 to 22, and we return to the theme of judgment, but it gets bigger. Verse 18, the floodgates of the heavens are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. This judgment is going to be meted out for the whole earth like in Noah's days. The floodgates of, heavens, of the heavens are opened. It's like a reversal of creation when God will bring mass destruction. But it gets even bigger than the whole earth. So in verse 21, he says, In that day the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on, on the earth below. It's going to be cosmic. We're talking about the end of the world. God will shake the heavens and the earth. People in ancient times, they considered the sun, the moon, and the stars to be, to be gods. They were the heavens, as, as, as this passage, as um, Isaiah quotes. But our God insists that they're not gods at all. God will be punishing those other so-called gods and every other religious system. The God of the Bible is sovereign over the spiritual realm as well. God is completely sovereign throughout history. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, every one of them. Egypt rose and fell. Assyria rises and will fall. Greece, Rome, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, and even the superpowers today, America and perhaps China. Every kingdom in history has risen and fallen. They're all in God's hands according to his timing. Isaiah himself prophesied that each one of them will fall and only within God's sovereign plan. I want to show you the history of the whole world in the next video and show you how easily and how quickly each kingdom rose and fell throughout history. This is the history of the world up to today. And hopefully you'll see how fragile, how fleeting everything is under God's sovereign hand. So we're going to go at eight times speed. Thanks, uh, Gab. Good on you. Back to prehistoric times, 
we see, so we're looking at all the colours change because each kingdom is a different colour. You see the land of Canaan is brown, that becomes Israel. You see even China's there, the Shang dynasty. The whole world is under God's control. We're watching the colours and the, the, the shapes of the jigsaw puzzle change coming and going. So this is Isaiah's time there. It's brown there, about 900, 800 and 700 BC. You're going to see the Assyrians get huge and they gone that fast. You will see something called the Achaemenid Empire. The Greeks in pink there, Alexander the Great. You see the Chinese and the Mongols. You see the Romans in purple are starting to take over. And you've got the Indian empires there in, uh, in the blue there. Rome is about to fall apart and it, fragile, it, it, it fragments there around 400... AD, you see um, the green one is the Muslim empires expanding in North Africa and the Middle East. We're about to see Genghis Khan and the Mongolian Empire go whoosh in a sec. Um, but you see how Europe's multicolored there. See the Mongolians? Whoa, that's massive. Probably the biggest his, um, empire in the history of the world. And we're now looking to include Australia and the Americas and, and Africa with colonisation uh, mainly through the British, the Spanish and the Portuguese. Russia's a big country. Uh, much of America was Spanish colonies there. There's Australia as a an, an, uh, British colony and it's all changing so much. We're up to the 20th century now, not so long ago. Look at all those colours change. And we're not... And yeah, that's it where it's fascinating. It just comes and goes. It's fleeting. Admittedly, we've, we covered about 3,000, 4,000 years in about one minute. But that, that's a minute in God's world. Everything just comes and goes. It's so fleeting because it's under God's sovereignty. We're up to today. What can you expect for our future? Probably more of the same. Kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling until God brings down his final judgment of Isaiah 24. This video shows God is truly sovereign over the whole world and for the whole of history. There's one more verse in this chapter. Verse 23 is a wonderful way to end Isaiah 24. He says, The Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. The world doesn't end with judgment. It ends with glory. The Lord will reign in his kingdom in heaven, figuratively here called Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will be the rightful king over his kingdom with great glory. And we're going to be part of that. His elders, representing his people, will be with him in glory. That's heaven. God reigning in the presence of his people in glory. And that is exactly how the Bible ends in its very final chapter. In Revelation 22, that Carol read to us, it's a vision of that same heaven. It's on the screen? Yeah. In heaven, there'll be a river of life coming from God with a tree of life on each side, which will be the healing of the nations, these nations that have been judged. This is healing. Those terrible nations that were destroyed, as prophesied by Isaiah, will have this amazing healing in heaven. No longer will there be any curse, all that judgment and curse that we've just read about, but instead they will see God face to face and reign with him forever and ever. This is our ultimate hope and reality as Christians, eternal glory with God. Past the judgment, a remnant delivered 
by Jesus through the gospel and brought to heaven in glory. How wonderful it is to be saved by God. I want to close with some reflections on the current state of the world. I think our world has gone mad. And I want to think particularly about this crisis in Hong Kong. There have been protests and riots since March, and people have died. This past week has been particularly terrible. For the past 35 weeks, millions of people have marched and demonstrated, both peacefully and violently, against the authorities. At times, the violence has been terrible from both sides, whether it's tear gas, Molotov cocktails, or live bullets. And this is happening in streets where many of us have personally walked or where our relatives live. On one hand, Hong Kong citizens claim autonomy and democracy as human rights, part of their heritage for the last, heritage for the last 156 years as a westernised society and as a British colony. But on the other hand, China sees Hong Kong as rightfully part of one country under its political system, under communism. How should Christians respond? Who is right? Who is wrong? Should, should the church take a stand? Well, I asked these questions to Wayne Mock, our newly appointed pastor of the church, when we interviewed him. Hard questions. Wayne has been living in Hong Kong for the past four years. Now, how would he respond to questions like that when he comes to minister in our church, our church, which has people from both China and Hong Kong? Whose side is he going to take? Wayne had a wise response. He said, no political system is perfect, and in this case, there is no clear-cut right way. But under God's sovereign control, every kingdom will rise and every kingdom will fall. Regardless of whether Hong Kong or China prevails, their time will come to an end in God's timing. So for Christians, it's not a matter of choosing sides. Instead, Christians are called to be holy and godly throughout history and under any kingdom. Holiness and godliness are what matter to God, and they last forever. It doesn't mean you shouldn't protest. That's a matter of your personal choice. But the Bible's principles are clear that we should condemn violence and make our point peacefully. As a church, we are to, to seek also that same holiness and godliness. That means seeking unity as a body and not let anything divide us, including politics um, and social goings-on. We are to be the hope and virtue amidst the violence and discord. We're also to grieve for the world, just like Isaiah did, this world that's gone mad, the world which is painful, fallen and under God's judgment. And we must trust in the rock-solid sovereignty of God, trust in his purposes in controlling history and look forward to heaven. And in the meantime, as we wait, we must drive people to the hope of the gospel. That's Hong Kong. But for us today in Australia, our troubles are on a different scale but are nevertheless similar. Our world can be just as crazy. When we too feel overwhelmed, feeling like the hostile world is closing in on our Christian existence, we need to remember the same principles. We can relax and not be anxious, but trust in God's sovereignty because he is in control. Pursue holiness and godliness. Preserve the church's unity. Grieve for the world. Drive people to the gospel and look forward to the reality of heaven. And I think that's what God has promised us in Isaiah 24 today. Thanks.